Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. All of my listeners, welcome to the Brown Sugar and Spice Show. I'm your host, Dr. Faye, and I, along with my co-host, Ms. Kaish Liebird, will be bringing the conscious conversation to your living room. Let me get Ms. Kaish on the line. Ms. Hello, Kaish. everybody. Hi. How are you, Dr. What? Faye? What's up? What's up? What's going on out there on the West Coast? Oh, the West is lovely. He had a sunny day today, avoided heat stroke. I think it's looking all, looking good, looking good. Good, good. Well, you're excited for tonight's show? I think it's going to be big. I think it's super, super big. And I think our guest is just such a great example of what can happen when we have an overcome opportunity. And so I'm really excited, really excited about this. So am I. So am I. So to all of my listeners out there, once again, thank you for tuning in. We are on our second season of the Brown Sugar. And tonight our special guest is a very close friend of mine, um, a special young man with an inspirational story, Mr. Kendrick Glover, who hails from Seattle, Washington. He will join us to discuss a topic that has at some point impacted all of our lives. We are discussing the American prison system, rehabilitation, mass incarceration, oh, and how can we forget, especially with Hillary Clinton vouching for the black vote, bringing our so-called super predators to heel. This young man is also known as Ken Ken. Some of you may know him as Smiley Joe. He has a big, beautiful smile. He's always smiling, even when it's a cloudy or rainy day. So let's get him on the line. Give me one second. Mr. Glover, are you there? Hello, hello, I'm here. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thank you, ladies, for having me. It's a pleasure and an opportunity to be heard. We appreciate you coming. How's life out there on on the West Coast in Seattle? Oh, man, you know, the weather is uh, always unpredictable. 
so uh, today it was sunny, but it was cold. So it was kind of uh, un- unpredictable once again. So, but we survived another day. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get, let's get this show started. Let's get it popping. So, don't you tell the listeners about yourself and your background? Uh, so, um, as you mentioned, some people uh, may know me as Kendrick. Ken Ken, Smiley Joe, uh, but right now in my adult life, I just go by Kendrick. Um, I uh, currently live in Seattle, Washington, uh, where I serve as an educator and a professional mentor, uh, but my background and my upbringing is from Natchez, Mississippi, so I'm a good old down southern boy. I like doing all the country stuff. Uh, some people uh, <laughs> tend to joke with me about that out here, um, but I tell them, you know, you guys like the outdoors. We like the outdoors down south as well, so that's one thing we got in common. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a country boy living in a big city, uh, trying to find, trying to chase a dream, which is to uh, empower and encourage our young people to be them better selves. Perfect, perfect. Oh, so let, let's yeah. jump into this. So you went to prison, correct? Oh, you just gonna go off the bat, just straight like that? Yeah, we, we so, going, we're going in, we're going in. So you okay. went to prison. Tell us about yes. that. Um, so this is not anything that I like to, um, you know, gratify or put on a pedestal or anything like that. But uh, at the age of fifteen, uh, I, along with two of my uh, young adult friends, when I say young adult, they were both over eighteen, but not to the age of twenty-one. Uh, so two of my uh, young adult friends, we uh, decided to, uh, you know, do some stupid stuff. And uh, one night we committed a robbery on a neighborhood guy, and uh, we thought we got away scotch-free. Uh, but unfortunately for us, there was a nosy neighbor that was uh, looking through her window, and uh, she called the police. And at the time in the neighborhood I lived in, it was a majority white neighborhood, and um, uh you know, it wasn't hard to identify a young black boy in the neighborhood, and she pointed us out. And, you know, the next day while I was at school, the police came and picked me up. And, um, yeah, that was my last time uh, seeing myself free until the age of 20 years old. Um, huh. uh, so I was uh, I was charged with armed robbery. Uh, I was charged as an adult. Uh, and what that means is that you are automatically auto-declined. So... A juvenile judge does not have to hear your sentence. You go straight to the adult court, so all your charges are now adult penalized. Um, and in the adult system, armed robbery carries zero to life in Mississippi. So, uh, and that's natural life, so meaning up to 25 years in prison. Um, the judge saw fit that I, uh, when I went on uh, trial at the time, I was 16, but I got uh, uh, committed when I was 15. But um, at that time, uh, the judge saw fit to uh, hand down a punishment of 10 years in prison um, for myself with five years on uh, probation, uh, and I could at that time receive any good time, which means I could go in the facility that they would send me to and do, uh, like, lawn work, work in the kitchen. Uh, so I was the guy that made the cookies, basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's what happened. I mean... So it sounds like it it started as teenagers folly and it turned into an absolutely life-changing night. I guess yes. what I would like to to expand on for that instance is just in the experience for yourself 
as a young boy living in, you know, a mixed neighborhood, but also um, as a teenager who's kind of doing what teenagers do, did you at any point um, in your earlier life think about possibly ending up in prison? Was that something that you had even been uh, exposed to in terms of relatives and, and experiences personally? Well, um, for me, growing up in uh, a small city like Natchez, all we saw were all, all I witnessed was crime. Uh, and the reason why at this time I was living in a predominantly white neighborhood is was because uh, my mother, uh, she had a lawsuit against a, 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 a male practice lawsuit, and she won. And with the money, she bought a house. And, of course, you know, you know, uh, low-income people, you know, receive a huge amount of funding. They want to, you know, position their families into a better place. So with the money, my mom bought a house, and uh, what we considered back in that time in the late 90s was an upper-scale neighborhood in Natchez uh, that was called Morgantown, and um, uh, so that's where we resided at. But uh, before that, I grew up in, uh, in, in the hood. I mean, in the apartment complex, it was called Cambridge Heights. Uh, we called it CBA, and uh, that's where I learned all the tricks of the trades. I mean, that's where I got my uh, my first uh, dose of uh, drugs, my first dose of alcohol, uh, my first dose of selling drugs, uh, not only just using them. Um, so um, gang involvement, I mean, you name it. It was it was in our community at that time, and uh, so I've always saw people go in and out of the juvenile system. I mean, out of the justice system, uh, from on one on one phase or another. Uh, but I never thought it would be me because I always thought I was too young. You know, I was only you know 12, 13 years old when I'm seeing these things happen before my very eyes. So the people I was seeing in and out of the system, they were you know 18, 19, 20 years old. So at the time when we committed this crime. In the back of my mind, I I thought if I were to get caught, that I wouldn't get any. So wow, wow. Um, yeah. So you were you were 16, correct? So you were 16. You're sentenced. You're sentenced to prison. So when you're yes. 16 years old, is there some sort of special concession that they make for juveniles who are tried and convicted as an adult, or do they just throw you into the general population and like, hey, you're an adult, deal with it? Well, one thing that really uh, kind of set me back was I had a public attorney. Uh, and at that time in Mississippi, uh, and still right now, Mississippi is a very racist state, um, so they don't really have uh, favorites when it comes to, uh, you know, African Americans in the, ju- in the, in the justice system. Um, so uh, I wrote a blind statement, which means that uh, at that time it could be used against me in court. So my oral statement uh, plus my written statement, it's just why I had to uh, basically cop out to a plea deal. Um, but I didn't know what that plea deal was going to be, um, which that was the sentence later on. Uh, but in that, it um, when I received my sentence, as I said, I was sentenced as, a, uh, as an adult, uh, but I was a juvenile uh, by age. So I went straight into uh, Parchment Penitentiary in Mississippi in the Delta. Uh, so I, I didn't get a chance to... Uh, really grow up in the system with juveniles. So even uh, during my eight-month stint in our county jail, I was bunked. My cellmate was a 45-year-old uh, one-time convicted murderer, now on trial for another murder. And uh, I remember it like it was yesterday uh, when I first uh, got arrested, and uh, they booked me in and they were taking me upstairs. 
uh, the uh, arresting officer at the time, he told me, he was like, this is the only cell that's left uh, at, that for you to go into because the judge has tried you as an adult, so you have to go on to the adult side. You cannot go on to the juvenile side. But when he when we were taking me up in the elevator, he said, you know, just be careful around this guy. Don't use his toothbrush or don't drink out the same cup as him. So I was I was kind of like, you know what? Like, I, I mean, I don't get it. Um, but later to find out that uh, the guy who I was uh, bunking in the cell with had uh, multiple uh, uh, infections and diseases that nobody else was aware of. Um, so it was basically a dog-eat-dog world. I mean, they just throw me in there and told me basically fend for myself. Like what type of infection? You so remember? He had, yeah, he had um, – he, well – they didn't tell me at the time, but, you know, after, you know, doing some, some research and action around in, in, in the jail, he had uh, what they consider like hepatitis C. Um, they said that he was being tested for HIV, and uh, it just kind of threw me off because I was like, why would you put, for one, me, a juvenile, in a cell block with adults, uh, with 20 more adults? And then out of all the cells you got, you would put me in a cell with someone who I could potentially uh, be uh, in contact with some major disease behind, you know. But uh, like I said, in, in, in a small town in uh, Mississippi like Natchez, um, it's not favored for our young people, especially our young people of color. There's a lot that I want to unpack from that statement. Let me start with you said that you signed a written and oral statement. For people who may not know, you, you kind of see the Mirandized version when you when you look at the, the TV, you look at movies, you, you hear you have the right to remain silent. But could you explain for listeners what exactly is the written and uh, oral statement, when those are taken, and legally if you're obligated to present either one of those yeah so first off let me just say i never was uh appointed a lawyer until after i went to court so at the time of my arrest is when they got me to start talking about uh what happened uh the night of the uh the crime was uh committed and um which then turned into a written statement um so that was foul play uh from the very beginning because then they took that statement and uh turned it against me when i went to court uh, so when you're a young 15-year-old uh, um, uh, black kid in Mississippi at the time and you're standing in front of, you know, some, some white officers who uh, tell you to say one thing versus saying another because this will potentially get you off, um, off, the, off the charge because you was a juvenile, basically telling me the same things that the older guys were telling me, like if you say this or you do that, then they're not going to give you too much time or you might just get uh, three to six month boot camp and then you'll be back out. Um, so the only thing you'll do is go in there and work out, get a little big and come out and look good for the girls. So that was the kind of, you know, the thing that they were always, the older guys would tell the younger guys in the neighborhood. Um, but uh, the officers kind of, you know, pinned me into a corner, kind of start, you know, throwing out, we know we could do this to you, you know, we could do that to you. And uh, it wasn't like I broke, but, you know, I started to uh, started to have a, a moment of clarity where I started to think about my life at that time and, uh, you know, the situation I was involved in uh, with my family because I grew up uh, without a dad. Uh, my mom, she struggled with substance abuse issues, so I was basically raised by my granny. 
uh, and my granny was old, and she would always be working. So, um, you know, there wasn't uh, a lot of people to look out uh, for my little sister. So at that time, I, you know, I just wanted to get back home. Um, so it wasn't like, um, you know, I was snitching on anybody. You know, all I told them was I was there. I don't know who else was there. And, um, and they asked, was a gun involved? I was like, no, there was no gun involved, uh, but some items was taken. And they told me to write that down, and then I wrote it, wrote it down. And basically what it was, it turned into a confession of I committed a crime. But at that time, I didn't have a lawyer to run anything by to kind of tell me about my rights and the things that I could say and not say. Um, so they just backdoored and used it on me in court, which is why okay, I Okay, so I, I want to take this moment to read a statement. Um, it was published on Time.com, but it's on the website of the American Civil Liberties Union. In case um, anyone is ever pulled over, uh, here are following things. You have the right to remain silent. Um, whether you've just been temporarily detained or formally arrested. There are some instances during a traffic stop where you must provide your license, registration, insurance, and name when asked. And there are some states where you are required to answer basic identifying questions, such as your name and address, by the police. But you are not required to give a statement beyond that. You can simply say, I choose not to answer that question. I wanted to put that out there as far as the legalese goes. Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 these, these are uh, things as an adult that I know now from uh, uh, studying uh, the criminal justice system and also having a bachelor's degree in criminal justice because that was my goal to be a juvenile attorney. So these are all things that I share with uh, the young people that I am fortunate to uh, be in their lives as a mentor right now. Um, but back then, and uh, 1999, 2000, I didn't have no idea of what any of that meant. So if I knew I had a right to be quiet or be silent, as the law said, uh, and be represented by an attorney, uh, then I don't think I would have ever, uh, you know, received a, as harsh of a penalty as I did. Uh, and by the way, um, the other guys that was uh, that was involved, uh, the, the 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 harshest punishment one received was. Uh, like three years probation and the other guy six month boot camp, but they were both over eighteen. So it was me as the long sixteen year old who received the harshest penalty uh, for the crime. Do you think that there is a, a remedy in the way that because you said you were from a majority um, Caucasian community, which is one thing, but then. Also, in your entry into the system, um, and you outrightly admit that you were part of the group that committed the crime, uh, what what advice or guidance can you offer to some of our listeners or relatives of listeners who at this very moment may be going through the process with a loved one? Um, what do you think would be great first steps? Um, first of all, what would be great is that you would never – uh, be in a situation to where you would have to commit a crime and uh, law enforcement get involved. Um, that would be ideal. But uh, we don't live in an ideal world or an ideal society, so as we know, things happen. Um, and with that, um, my suggestion would be to uh, always know your rights, always know where you stand, even if it's just the basic rights uh, like you just mentioned uh, that was provided uh, by the ACLU, I think you stated that, uh, you know, know what you can and cannot say uh, when you when the police uh, are trying to question you. 
um, when they pull you over, uh, whether it's deemed legal or illegal. Uh, just, just basically know know the basic rights, uh, when to talk and when not to talk, and when them al- when to allow them um, to in- invade your space and not. Um, so those those would be my uh, most uh, key suggestions. So, Kendrick, let me ask you this question. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about policy, especially with the uh, presidential election moving ahead and with the current debates. Um, mass incarceration has been a, a hot, pretty hot topic. So, you, And you know that Hillary Clinton referred to you, I think it was sometime in the 90s, you know, like yourself as super predators who needed to be brought to heel. So I want to ask you, what are your thoughts about that statement and do you feel like the Clinton administration is responsible for the mass incarceration of black males in the United States? You know, it was always my uh, saying that I never talk to things with uh, many people listening, politics and religion, because you could lose friends on uh, either side. Um, but I'm thankful that you kind of gave me the heads up about uh, um, this conversation. Uh, but I think that uh, right now and uh, in our country, we are faced with uh, one of the biggest decisions um, um, that is looming over us right now uh, to date in our existence. Um, we have two, uh, uh, in my opinion, talented individuals in their own right. Um, however, uh, some would say fit, some would say unfit to lead uh, to lead a nation, uh, to lead a country. Um, so for me, uh, I think uh, in the early 90s, uh, I think the Clinton administration, uh, they did some amazing things, of course. Uh, he wouldn't have got uh, reelected to a second term if not so. Uh, but I also think that, uh, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, that uh, it set uh, the uh, black community back in the United States um, with the three-strike minimums. Um, with the mandatory minimums, uh, uh, with the, the, the discrepancy between uh, hard cocaine and soft cocaine. I mean, I have a lot of family members and friends who are um, who are what the prison system called beneficiaries of those laws. I mean, it, it, it's just pointless to a point to where it makes me, as an American citizen, uh, not want to vote for either candidate because I can see where they both stand uh Throughout their history, um, so I was. Uh, it was very interesting that uh, two days ago uh, I was driving uh, to one of my school sites uh, to where I go visit uh, some youth, uh, and I was listening to the Warren uh, Warren Ballantyne show, and uh, he gave his expression on uh, the Clinton administration at the time. And uh, I don't know if this is true or not because I haven't had the opportunity to uh, do my uh, research, so I shouldn't even be saying it. But he made a valid point on uh, the Clinton administrations uh, in the eight, in the early, uh, late 80s when uh, uh, Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas when uh, a lot of uh, illegal drugs were being uh, flown into Arkansas and then pushed throughout the United States. Um, so I think for me that there were a lot of mistakes made, and I think right now um, that it's one of those uh, things to where the Clintons are trying to come back and redo some of the uh, harm that they caused in the early uh, late 80s and early 90s because now they are seeing the results of, uh, of their actions. Um, so, so for me, um, 
the political scene as it stands is uh is not where I would like to see it you know I think that there are some you know other qualified candidates out there just let's put it like that another thing that I, uh, comes to mind is the fact well you have representation on the federal level but you also have lawmakers that make policy on a state level and enforce on a local and county level. And I also wanted to talk about the importance of those elections um, because people think about the figurehead in the executive branch, but laws are written by the House, by Congress, and on a, on a state level by the Assembly. Or um, So for the the California Senate. So you need to make sure that, you know, you're paying attention to what's going on locally also to see um, who your assemblyman or assemblywoman is and what policy they propose, what policies they support. But politics aside, um, this story did not end with your incarceration. And so no, I, want, no. I want to take the opportunity to press on onto the positive. What happens next? So real quick, let me just uh, touch on one more thing when you were talking about, like, the House and the Senate and things like that. Currently, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 430-some-odd members of the House of Representatives. Uh, however, only 43 of those are black. So when we talk about, uh, you know, pushing policies and pushing laws, uh, it's still not favored. Uh, it's still not favored in our favor. Uh, also, out of the what hundred senators, only two of those, out of four of those are black. So we're talking about two of the most highest judicial appointees in our nation, and out of over five hundred people that serves in uh, these office positions, you know, uh, what less than one percent of them are African American. Um, so, uh, what chance do they stand to push policies and procedures that would benefit uh, the communities that they came from? Um, so I just wanted to touch on that real quick because it was uh, it was something that was heavy on my mind. Um, but yes, the story about Kendrick Glover it it, it continues. Um, it's kind of like a, a book or a movie that's like a cliffhanger or that just continues to go on and on and on. You like what's next? What's next? Um, so after I was sentenced uh, to prison and um, I was inside. I met a very intelligent man, um, and I called him OG. Uh, you know, some people in the hood would call it original gangster. Uh, I considered it an old grandpa because he used to always share stories with me with, about his grandkids. So that what I labeled him as, an OG, as an a, a old grandpa. Uh, but he was a, a man that had uh, been battling drug addiction for uh, his entire adult life, um, and at the time I met him, he was uh, 64 years old. Um, so uh, he was uh, serving a life sentence in prison for just a long list of crimes that stemmed from his uh, drug addiction. Um, but uh, he he took hold of me, like he took an interest in me. Because like I told you guys, when I was in, when I was sentenced to prison, I was sentenced to adult prison. Uh, so at the time, I was not around any juveniles. To uh, later on in my sentence, when Mississippi built their first uh, juvenile uh, prison uh, called Walnut Grove in uh, 2002. Uh, so my last year of prison, I would uh, serve at Walnut Grove. 
but when I was inside, I uh, met OG, and uh, he took a liking to me. So he gave me some information on what a man is and how a man's supposed to uh, be a provider, a protector, and a supporter. And, um, you know, I used to sit up every night listening to this dude through the sales. And, uh, you know, he just shared a lot of information with me. And the one thing he shared with me, he said if I didn't do anything else, to get an education while I was inside. So uh, I, you know, started the GED program. Uh, before um, before I started the GED program while I was in prison, the last uh, grade I physically completed was about the seventh grade. Uh, so my rest came uh, the summer of eighth grade, moving into ninth grade uh, with uh, a couple uh, months spent in uh, the ninth grade. Um, so... Uh, I received my GED while I was in prison, and uh, when I got out, I, before I was released, I wrote myself a letter uh, giving myself um, uh, some points on what I should do upon my release, and one of those points were to, uh, you know, fulfill my requirements of education uh, by taking uh, ACT tests. So these are things I just looked up um, my uh teacher while I was incarcerated, she told me about how I could get into college if I wanted to go because I was still going to be young enough to try to change my life around. That was that rehabilitation moment, I guess. Um, uh, but what I did was I went, I got out and I went to a local college in uh, Natchez, uh, Colin, and I took uh, the ACT test and uh, I scored a 22 on the ACT test. And this was just me studying for uh, six months during my GED coursework uh, while I was incarcerated, uh, but not being actively involved in education for at least the last seven or eight years. Uh, so I was never one of those kids that were uh, what they considered dumb or slow or not smart. I was always intelligent. It's just the things that they were teaching me, it wasn't interesting to me. I didn't find it, uh, you know, something that I could use in my immediate life because I was uh, surrounded by so many other distractions, you know, how was uh, finding out about Christopher Columbus was going to help me survive the neighborhood of CBA when I got, you know, gangsters on one side of the street and I got bloods on the other and I'm walking down the street from home, I'm walking down the street from school, uh, you know, so it, it just didn't click with me at the time. Um, but I, uh, I took the ACT test, like I said, I uh, received a score of a 22. And, uh, you know, I immediately applied for college. And six months after my release, I was admitted into Jackson State University, which is the HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, I saw a smile on my, uh, on my mom's face that I never saw before, you know. And um, it, it was just one of those feelings, man, that it, it, you can't even put into words, you know. Uh, it, just, it just amazed me. Um, but like I said, my story is kind of my story is kind of like a cliffhanger to where it's a never-ending saga, and uh, I would eventually get kicked out of Jackson State two years after being enrolled there um, for uh, you know selling weed on campus and promoting what they considered violence at the time. Uh, but I was you know still you know getting into a lot of things. What people have to understand is that. Uh, when I got involved in being incarcerated, I was 15 years old. Uh, and when I went to college, I was 20, uh, 21 years old, almost 22 years old. So I really, truly saw none of my teenage life played out. Uh, I was a man at a very early age. 
so I didn't know what it was like to be in a school setting around 30,000 black people that had a different mindset of what education looked like and what, how they viewed it, you know. So I immediately detached myself from what we considered those kids who were on college, on the campus just to go to school to those kids who were on campus just to be at the school. Uh, so I was more one of those kids who wanted to be at the school. But then on the reverse side, I always shined in the classroom. I carried a 3.5 my two years at Jackson State, and I graduated from Seattle University with a 3.8 on my bachelor's degree. So by no means I was I was the dumb kid. It's just that it was nothing that um, nothing that sparked me about the education that I received at the time. Um, excellent, uh, so, excellent. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's that's a remarkable accomplishment and you know you have a great story we have a lot of listeners on the show right now so for all the listeners out there please call up at 323-642-1753 press one if you want to join in on the discussion we actually do have a caller who wants to come into the discussion so i'm going to bring them on right now we have attorney robinson from south carolina like to join the show so we're going to bring them in good evening are you there how are you Great, great. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm listening in and I'm enjoying your show, uh, number one, because this is an excellent way for us to stay engaged, um, get engaged and stay engaged. And I've heard several things which I, I feel almost obligated to respond to. The young man who just finished speaking, and congratulations to him for his accomplishment said something about um, there being a better alternative um, candidate for the presidency. We have to be realistic about certain things. Gary Johnson is not going to be elected president of the United States. And when I hear particularly millennials talk about um, a protest not vote or voting for an alternative um, comment, then it tells me that somehow they're missing the message. A vote for an alternative candidate or a no vote is by uh, uh, um, is, is almost an automatic vote for Trump. Um, if you compare both candidates, I think we will all agree that Hillary Clinton is not perfect. But Hillary Clinton is light years ahead of Donald Trump. When you think of all the labels that he evokes, he's uh, racist, he's misogynistic, uh, he's a blowhard. He is woefully uninformed about uh, politics, uh, national and international. He is got a hair trigger. He is, he operates like a petulant three-year-old. That is not a person that it is safe to have as commander-in-chief of this country. The second thing is, when I consider that he and his handlers think that in the space of about three weeks, he can craft and present uh, a legitimate appeal to African Americans, it makes me literally want to scream when you look at his past, when you look at his current performance, when you look at all of the negative ways he has either ignored us or used us or villainized us, 
this is not a man who is we're going to get any benefit from being commander in chief of of our forces nor the president of this country. So then, may I ask you, as an as an attorney in the state of South Carolina, do you have any specific policies or a referendum that might be up for vote that you want to use to encourage listeners to potentially attend, pay attention to as we prepare for the general election? Because we do know there are a variety of things that motivate people around voting, and so I'm giving you just the opportunity to point out specific um, maybe policies that may be popular well, or, or talked about currently one, in South Carolina. Traditionally, traditionally, black people congregate around and are activated by their church associations. I think our churches do a great disservice to us as people, as, as the, the, the audience whose money they suck out of our pockets every week. They do a great, great disservice to us by not encouraging um, and staging engagement of African Americans about their own destiny. So if we can impact um, our situation, if we use those mechanisms, and the interesting thing is we don't have to go looking for these platforms. They already exist. But when we get caught up and, and other people have, have us down pat, they know that all you've got to do is appeal to our preachers and they will deliver us to the, to the slaughterhouse in whatever numbers that somebody demands. We, should, we have got to take and turn that around and somehow or another uh, uh, take hold of that power we have a tremendous potential power, but we don't use it. We sit up and we won't stay informed. We allow other people to mislead us, to give us uh, uh, um, uh, false and incorrect information, and we don't go and, and inform ourselves of what issues are. And I, I think if somehow or another we can communicate to churches that they have a greater responsibility than passing the collection plate as a threshold. That that can be very effective. So speak, speaking of that, it's a perfect segue into the conversation. Speaking of, you know, taking control of your own destiny and not relying on the church. So this question is for Mr. Glover. So what are you doing in your community? Like I heard that you mentioned that you are mentoring. Like what's the focus of your program more troubled teams or you. Okay. Um, first off, um, just let me say thank you uh, to uh, the attorney you just called in. And uh, I'm definitely not the one to uh, convince or sway a person's vote. Um, but for, like, so many other convicted felons like myself, uh, I don't have an opportunity to vote, so I volunteer. Uh, so I tell people all the time, if you're not doing one, you should be doing the other because silence is consent. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that, that I'm not uh, putting my uh, stamp of approval on either or candidate or none of the candidates before who didn't make it to this point. Um, but right now, for uh, for myself in the current role that I sit in, uh, I, uh, uh, I was a school counselor uh, for a number of years, and uh, 
I just got tired of seeing our young people being uh, uh, mislabeled and uh, not uh, being treated the way uh, they should and have a value equal opportunity uh, to an education that uh, the peers in their same school, even in their same classrooms, were receiving. It was just a lot of discrepancies there for me, uh, so I could not uh, sit back any longer and uh, and watch that um, those injustices happen uh, in our education system. Uh, so I started a mentoring organization uh, in the city of uh, Kent, Washington, which is about 20 miles outside of Seattle. And uh, in that community, it is uh, it serves as um, one of the fourth largest diversity uh, cities in the state of Washington. Uh, their school district alone speaks over 140 languages. Uh, so that should tell you that there are a lot of families and uh, diversity that resides in that community. And um, so uh, what I did in my uh, call to uh, response is that I created a mentor group uh, inside the schools when I was a counselor, and uh, I started uh, bringing in young men of color, uh, black, uh, Asian, Hispanic, uh, you know, uh, young men like that, to talk about some of the issues that they were dealing with, not only uh, in the school and in the classrooms and in the hallways, but outside in their community. Uh, and that kind of sparked the idea to start uh, Glover Empower Mentoring because I knew that my legacy would be bigger than just uh, what I could do in the education system. Uh, so recently I quit my job in the education system because I just got fed up with it. Um, and I uh, now I'm doing uh, uh, my mentoring organization full-time, in which I serve as the executive director. Um, and if you know anything about nonprofit organizations, they're grant-funded. So, of course, I'm doing a lot of grant writing right now. Um, but uh, my classes in my Ph.D. program is really paying off because I'm a stronger writer because of that. So um, I think I'm uh, doing uh, yeah, yeah, I'm involved in a, a Ph.D. program at City University here in uh, Seattle. Oh, um, so uh, you will be able to uh, call me just like you call Dr. Faye, but in a different sense, Dr. Glover here in about another uh, 16 months. Uh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. Parole to Ph.D.s. <laughs> say, say again? Parole to Ph.D. Yes, parole, yes, yes. So We, we, expect, um, we expect that book to drop. Yes, that book is is actually in the works right now. Um, I got a lot of credit to give out um, to uh, some strong people that are in my corner uh, right now, uh, but it's it's in the works. So uh, when it comes, I'm definitely going to see if I can uh, debut it here on uh, uh, Brown and Sh Brown Sugar and Spice. If you guys will allow me to. Forward to it. Let, yeah. let me ask you this, Kendrick, so, or Mr. Glover. Sorry about that. You know, we hey, go way back. I, we go back. Okay. You can go back. Um, so how has prison like you know, prison affected your ability or did it affect your ability to become gainfully employed? And the reason I ask this because of course, you know, regardless of how successful I am or people I know, I have, you know, relatives and friends who have been a part of the been a part of the judicial system and they have trouble finding employment after they are stamped with say, Hey, I'm a felon. So you had any advice to the felon out there who may be listening, who may be struggling, who's trying to stay on the right path, but, you know, there's just so many barriers because of that stigma. What advice would you offer that person? 
Yeah, this is the advice I offer to uh, students at the elementary level, all the way through the college level and into their adulthood. Education, education, education. I think for me what what, uh, propelled me to the level I'm at now is that I never gave up on myself. I know uh, that I was smarter than what people were giving me credit for. And uh, to me, I took that as an insult, and I wanted to prove them wrong, uh, which is why I have risen uh, to uh, almost completing a Ph.D. status. As of now, it's not only because to prove them wrong, but it was also to prove myself right and to saying that I am a smart, intelligent black man who can affect change in and around his community. Um, So for all of those young people or adults um, out there who may be listening or may hear this show sometime in the uh, in the future, um, just know that uh, one mistake does not uh, change your life. Um, everybody makes mistakes. Some people are just not caught for them. But I would definitely encourage you to uh, seek out uh, and explore the options of education, and not just in the traditional sense of going to a two-year college, a four-year college, or university. Uh, but also exploring the options of trade schools. You know, a lot of people are good with their hands, so getting those apprenticeship certificates, uh, getting those carpentry and electrician certificates. I mean, you can make very good money at the apprentice level uh, by doing jobs that you know you're good at uh, working with your hands. So I would encourage everybody to seek out some path of education, uh, whether it's uh, traditional or non-traditional. Absolutely. And what about family members, you know, Going to prison or being involved in a crime, you know, it affects everyone, not just the person who's the accused perpetrator or the alleged, you know, criminal, but for family members who want to support this person, but, you know, maybe this person's habitual, you know, um, criminal, or they simply just, you know, constantly, they're always in trouble. So what advice would you give for family members who need to support someone who works in your shoes when you were 16 years old? in general population, in Parchment, Mississippi. I mean, that's that's hard labor. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the thing that really and truly got me through uh, my time while I was incarcerated, uh, and it's the reason why I'm in, uh, I moved to Seattle, Washington, it was my Aunt Janice. Uh, she would, every every major holiday, every birthday, she would always send a card. And in that card, she would always send uh, what she considered a love offering of uh, between 20 and 50 bucks. And it wasn't the money that I was more uh, happy uh, about when I uh, saw uh, a, a dress label with her name on it. It was more about the card because I knew in that card was always a handwritten message. And it was some type of inspiration. And uh, she's a God-fearing woman. She's a Christian uh, down to her soul. And she would always leave me scriptures and give me Bible verses to read, uh, which is uh, why I drew closer to God in my personal life because I saw that uh, it affected her so much. And I wanted to be a part of what she was a part of because I looked up to her just that much. Um, so family plays a huge role in anyone's uh, trying to get uh reach sobriety, uh, trying to uh, uh, stop living a crime-ridden life, or for those first-time offenders, your family is going to be your main support system. If you don't have a support system that you consider your family while you're incarcerated or going through the the justice system, uh, it could be a hindrance to your uh, future success because what it's going to do is going to place that uh, mindset on you, a fixed mindset, not a growth mindset. So what I mean when I say fixed mindset, it's going to allow you for yourself to think nobody cares about me. They want to see me in a position like this, so why should I care about myself? 
instead on the flip side of having a growth mindset when you have family members that support you and saying this is not where you belong. When you are done with this, there are more opportunities for you to get involved in to live a better and prosperous life. Um, so family is one of, uh, one, of, one, was one of the biggest reasons why I overcame uh, that obstacle of going to prison. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree. I mean, I've definitely been on the other side of the fence, you know, supporting family members um, who have been in your shoes. And it, it was tough. It was tough on everybody, not just, yeah. you know, person behind bars, but also, you know, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles. And it's, it's extremely important to have that system. But I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. Of course, it takes a lot of courage to share your experience. If you have, do you have a Twitter account or an IG account where, you know, listeners can follow you? And do you have a website for your mentoring program that you would like to share? Yeah, I have a, for our mentoring site, our mentoring organization uh, name is GEM, uh, acronym G-E-M, which stands for Glover Empower Mentoring. And uh, you can follow us on Facebook at uh, Glover Empower Mentoring. You can also uh, check us out on our uh, newly revamped uh, website at gem, G-E-M, power, P-O-W-E-R, mentoring.org. So that's gempowermentoring.org. And if you care anything about who I am as a person, you can also follow me on uh, Facebook at Kendrick Glover. I mean, uh, and I don't have a Twitter. Um, I'm not uh, that crafty uh, with the Twitter fingers yet, uh, but I am developing that skill. So I'm gonna get. I'm gonna step my game up and get a Twitter page. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you to all my listeners out there. That was Mr. Glover calling in from Seattle, Washington. We greatly appreciate him taking time out of his busy schedule. Sure, he had a lot to do today, mentoring, changing lives. So thank you once again for coming on to the show. Greatly appreciate that. And again, for all the listeners thank out there, you. this show was proudly sponsored by Mr. Anthony Heidelberg of Heidelberg Law Office located in Natchez, Mississippi. He's serving your your legal needs in Mississippi and Louisiana. He's located at 55 Sergeant Prentice Drive, Suite 101. You can give him a call at 601-445-8090. Once again, Mr. Anthony Heidelberg was a proud sponsor of tonight's show, so greatly appreciate him and his services as well. So, Ms. Kaish, what, what, what did you think about the show tonight? Well, multiple things on multiple levels because I just love the fact that he was able to share openly. Thank you again, uh, Kendrick, for being so um, forthcoming and even sharing that you fell again a second time. I had to start over, um, you know, after being put out of your first uh, college. And there's nothing like, uh, I think, an overcome story and so people can see in a real time that it will not be easy. It will not be handed to you, but it is very much possible for you to make something from nothing. I am really, really encouraged. I feel like this is a story that can not only inspire myself, though I haven't had run-ins with the, the legal system and incarceration, but other people who may, whether it's a relative who's impatient and have decided to not interact with someone who is indeed incarcerated, and they may know that they might be the lifeline, literally the only person that gives that person the, the encouragement to continue 
forward and the ability to to know that there is something possible beyond their current life. So I'm very grateful. I am very thankful. I think that we've we've touched on a number of things tonight, from policy and politics to prison and parole, and ultimately a PhD from Mr. Glover. And I am singing his phrases and very much excited for him. Absolutely. I don't know how my listeners feel, but I'm definitely inspired, you know, even though we took very different paths to get to where we are as far as our success. But that just goes to show you perseverance and tenacity really does pay off. And I've seen so many people get discouraged because because of the barriers and because of the consequences of their past um, actions have not necessarily dictated their future, but it has severely impacted where they are going. So I don't want people to get discouraged. I hope, hopefully he can inspire a youth or troubled teen who he may identify as going in that same path and maybe, you know, head them off early on. But once again, it was a great show. We had a lot of listeners and callers tonight. So hopefully the show keeps growing and we're, we're going to be.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.